Hello, it's RyeCast, I'm James Stewart, and today's podcast is all about Charlie Harkness. He's been heavily involved in Rye News from the start after a long career in journalism. Actually, he's been the editor of Rye News twice and still contributes to our paper. So I'm looking for loads of good stories about his work in news and about his time working in Westminster. He's got some interesting views about our town, another local who's passionate about both Rye, past and present, and a fascinating family history too. I'm meeting him at his place in Valley Park, so an easy walk round the corner for me. Charlie, so much to talk about. How did you become a journalist? At university. I was getting fed up with the history I was doing and thought I'd do something interesting. And someone said, oh, there's a lot of women working on the university newspaper. And that was quite enough. And I immediately went there. What sort of stories were you working on? A whole range of stuff. But the worst time was probably there was a very bad winter in the 60s and I was responsible for sports pages. And finding... Sport, when there's deep snow everywhere, is rather difficult. But I did other interesting things. We went and interviewed Scylla Black up at the ABC Cinema in Norwich, where a lot of pop concerts in those days used to be in cinemas. And Scylla was terribly young then, and very bad acne, and lots of stuff covering it. But she also had a very heavy accent, which she and changed over time but we were having great trouble understanding what she was saying and a few weeks later the Beatles turned up at the ABC in Cambridge and we had to have a draw amongst all the staff on the paper about who was going to be allowed to actually talk to them and did you no (laughs) unfortunately you got Scylla Black yeah I got Scylla Black But I think Richard Whiteley, who went on to work for Yorkshire Television, actually got the Beatles. But of course, nowadays, you wouldn't see them in a centre that doesn't seat less than half a million. And Richard Whiteley, obviously from Countdown, famous TV presenter, he was a university chum? Yes, he was editor of Varsity, and in fact, he beat me to the post. In fact, I've been written into a biography of his. Now, I, I knew him well and saw him quite often over the years. He had bad asthma like me, so we had a point in common. But, uh, yes, he worked on Countdown for years and years and years. And he was a bit sad when he died suddenly, about the age of 50, I think. No age. Well, it's no age, no. I mean, I'm determined to live on and on because my father died in his 20s in the Second World War and my grandfather died in the 20s in the... First World War. And so uh, I feel I've got to live my life to the full to make up for the lives they never had. You've got the pictures on the wall. Have you done much research into their lives? Well, not a great deal. I know my grandfather was in the Honourable Artillery Company, which is based in the city of London, and he died in Italy in the last three days of the war. And it took ages for my grandmother to get the news that he'd actually been killed. I know a bit more about my father because he got the DFC for a a bombing raid and he was killed on the first thousand bomber raid over Germany. But he never got farther than the Netherlands because he was shot down by German fighters there. So I know a bit about them, but not a lot more than the fact there is a grave 
in Italy near Venice and there's another grave in the Netherlands. But I don't know. I've been asked by my son, don't you want to go there? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Why not? I think it would take three years of psychotherapy to give you an answer to that question. (laughs) I don't really know. He was dead. Why should I be interested in the grave? I've never been near the grave of my mother and my stepfather, who died in the 90s. I'm not sure. Some people find graves important. I don't think I have. I think it's the lives that are important. And as a journalist, I've always been interested in talking about people's lives. And Mm. hearing somebody's story, perhaps for the first time, Mm. it's certainly why... I got into the business. And there are people that you kind of remember, who stick in your brain, who you've interviewed. One obvious one was Robert Maxwell, who became rather notorious. But I went to see him when I was working as a union official. And he spent the whole time interrupting the conversation, going to answer the phone. And he'd come back and say, oh, that was the president of East Germany. And you thought after a while, oh, this is just rubbish, you know. If he wants to talk... Let him talk. But if he's not going to talk, I'm not going to hang around waiting for him. Do you know he's a wrong un? I don't think I knew at the time. I just thought, I can't stand this bloke. <laughs> you weren't intimidated, because he always comes across as a very intimidating character. I didn't feel intimidated by him, but I just felt annoyed because he was wasting my time. I was there for a specific purpose, to talk to him about the wages of the journalists who worked for him. And he wasn't talking about it. He was kept on changing the subject. Just going back to your work as a journalist, you were at Varsity. Where Mm. next? Next, I went to the Kent Messenger, and then I went up north to work on the Northern Echo that was a morning paper, and then I went to work at the Evening Gazette in Middlesbrough. One of the exciting roles then was to help draft the football column by one of the Charlton brothers. Let's say... Their ability with sentences was limited. So you wrote it for them? I wouldn't exactly say that, but there was a lot of guidance. Journalism is a whole variety of things, because I've worked on news, I've worked on features, and I've worked on what might be called the sort of social-type pages where you're interviewing people. I think journalism is just simply about being interested in people, being interested in events and wanting to know how the two fit together. What's the biggest story you've worked on? It's funny, journalist minds work in ways totally different from the rest of the population. And what you think is your most interesting story may not be your biggest one. I suppose the biggest one I was probably involved in was the Piper Alpha rig that was destroyed And a lot of people died. And at that time, I was working with the union that represented something like, I think it was 18 British telecom engineers who died on the rig. And obviously that story was in all the national papers and got a lot of attention. But another one, which did end up on the first page of the News of the World, (laughs) was about a prison story when I was working in Maidstone and Metropolitan Police warrant cards had allegedly been forged in the prison workshop 
And the guy in charge of the prison workshop was a guy who had a long jail sentence because he was a naval officer who'd been done for spying. And this was a story that uh, did make the news of the world and gave me a bit of pocket money as well. (laughs) Those days in journalism, when I first started out, hard drinking, hard smoking, hard living, Mm. every now and again, typewriter thrown across the office. Mm -hmm. Why did that? (laughs) (laughs) Very different to today. Well, I don't know about today because I've been retired for 15 years now, but my last nearly 20 years was spent working in the civil service in Whitehall. Of course, I would say that nothing like that ever happened in Whitehall. Everybody is terribly well behaved. On the other hand, you may have read your newspapers over the last few months and realised it's slightly different. (laughs) So I can recall a few parties that where too much was drunk, And I recall one press officer, overcome with drink, who managed to be sick in eight separate filing cabinets on his way out of the building. So he then got a new job. (laughs) I can't remember where, but it was probably the worst possible job going in Downing Street. The amount of booze that must have been drunk. This country must have been fuelled on it, literally. (laughs) Yes, you could say that. Certainly... There's always been a lot of drink around Whitehall. There's always been a lot of drink around newspaper offices and even radio stations because you have to meet a lot of people and quite often you meet them outside work and they're going to be having a quiet drink or sometimes a very noisy drink. I remember a few police parties that were incredibly noisy. And it's a good source of stories, as you say. Well, yes. Some of them didn't get published. So you're a journalist, you're working in PR, and then you end up in government. So yes. poacher turned gamekeeper. Yeah, I suppose sort of. I think I was always regarded with a slight bit of suspicion because people knew about my journalistic background. But on the other hand, I'd got quite a considerable academic background as well. And... I was working on climate change most of my time there. And if people knew that you knew what you were doing, they'd be respectful. If they thought you were a total idiot, clearly they wouldn't. (laughs) What about the politicians you worked with? Who did you admire? Can we pass on that one? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of today's politicians? Same answer? I have to be very careful as a Labour Party member. I don't really know today's politicians very well. I think politicians are like journalists. They have to deal with a lot of awkward situations and sometimes they behave well and sometimes they don't behave well. (laughs) So presumably in your PR role, you've covered up for politicians? Oh, that's a difficult one. I don't think I've ever covered up politicians. I think I was responsible for one politician's getting into trouble because uh, um, one of my Christmas tasks was organising the Christmas party and I was notorious for producing a punch that was somewhat strong. 
with an incredible amount of alcohol in it. And I was later aware that some politician, no, a particular politician had got into trouble for something he did after that party. Hmm? But I'm not going to name names. <laughs> you saw my quizzical eyebrow raise at that point. <laughs> yes. I think that politician has already had enough problems because of that story. Travelling around the country, working in government, and then moved to Rye. Why Rye? Simply because my ex-wife was here. I had initially retired to Devon, although I worked from Devon for a number of years, travelling backwards and forwards on a train like an MP. But then I'd been on a couple of holidays with my ex-wife, who seemed to have parted temporarily uh, from our current bloke. And I thought, why not? You know, I'll move to Rye. Looks interesting. It looks slightly less boring than Torquay. Well, it's certainly that. What do you like about Rye? I'm interested in Rye historically and geographically and in the people. My first degree was history and geography. And Rye has changed so much over the centuries as the geography has changed, as the rivers have changed. So there's a lot there. And I know, because I've seen some maps and things, that actually where my house is in Valley Park, I'm only a few feet above the high level when the river was tidal. Historically, I mean, it was it's great. It used to be part of France. People don't realise that. It was actually part of France for a long time. So it's got a very long history. At one point, it was the fourth largest port in the UK in the Middle Ages, which is hard to think about. You think, well, how, how the hell can it be? But at that time, it was exporting wood, timber, wool, all sorts of stuff over to France and bringing back massive amount of booze in return, <laughs> all of which went rapidly up the road to Whitehall. So, no, it's an interesting place, and there's lots of interesting people here. I've enjoyed being here. And always the journalist, always looking for stories. But that's why I got involved in Rye News and was its editor fairly quickly after it started. I'm incredibly nosy. That's why a lot of people sort of get pissed off with me from time to time. Once I get into conversation, I just keep digging. Do you like a good argument? As I've got older, I think I... Less eager for arguments, although I'm in a weekly discussion group. I think the thing with arguments is that everybody has a set point. And so you look at the game, will you? What would you like to change about the town? Oh. I don't think part of the town cares enough about those who are worst off. Although... The town, some of its bodies and some of its people, reacted very well during the COVID crisis and have reacted very well over the years through the food bank and other groups like that. I still feel there is a sort of massive class division that you can see by simply standing on the bridge over the River Tillingham in Ferry Road, when school starts, the kids pour out. 
they aren't coming from the town, or very rarely. The average age in the town, unless I'm badly mistaken, is quite old. Whereas the average age in Chilling is much, much less. You're a very political animal. We talked about the Labour Party. You were part of the town council. Yes, and I was elected to the town council as a Labour councillor. But when I was there, I thought, we've got to do what's best for the town. And actually, party politics didn't come into it very much. It was more personal politics. But sort of, if anything, I suppose there's always tension on the council between the old who've been here for donkey's years and the newcomers. And I think that's true in every area of the town. There's a tension between those people who've grown up in Rye and those people who arrived. I do think that newcomers have sort of slowly been building up in quantity. So we're getting to a point where sometimes there there seem to be more newcomers than old people. On the other hand, a lot of newcomers over the years have proved that they've a lot to give to Rye. So it's an uneasy tension. And a lot of things emerge through a creative tension between old and new. So maybe it's a good thing. And what was it like wearing the you know, the robes, the hats, being part of that historical part of Rye? Oh, that was great fun because I'm tone deaf and totally unable to sing. So I always made sure I was very close to Rebecca, who's now the mayoress, because she trained as an opera singer. And so therefore I could just mouth to the uh, hymn and no one noticed because her volume was sort of supreme. Oh, I didn't mind that. Uh, I quite enjoyed uh, the racket because oh, I had that university. I began going to university in Cambridge. I had a gown. Because I was an entrance scholar, I had to read the grace in Latin every now and again. There was a sort of rota for reading it. But I like these traditions, yeah. And you're still writing some stories for Rye News? Occasionally, but um, I've been uh, struck down with uh, prostate cancer and bowel cancer for the last three years. And so uh, that's, that meant I had to back down. But I, I had two periods as uh, editor, which was quite, quite enough, probably. How are you now? Mm. Well, better than I was, but not as good as I'd like. Yeah, old age is a bit of a problem, really, isn't it? Because you do get old and you can not do as much as you could do. But I have restored my reputation as a regular in the Sunports and I'm beginning to re-establish the reputation as a regular in the Standard. And with a bit of progress, I will be a regular in the Waterworks. At 80, I probably should learn to go quietly, which I won't. Thanks to Charlie Harkness. Looking forward to seeing him around town for a pint and some of the stories that he told me after we stopped recording, the sort of stories that if we put on a podcast we'd both get into trouble. 
If you want the recipe for the punch, it seems to involve a lot of gin and vodka, and not much else. Rykast is back soon. Get in touch on the email if you'd like to suggest a story, or like Charlie Harkness, a fascinating local with a story to tell. It's rykastsussex at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.